God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, not seeking to do our own will, but seeking to do your will. And so, Lord, we ask you to set aside our personal desires so that we may focus on your glory, your purpose, and your work in the world. Lord, we have, as humans, gathered to sing songs of praise to you, to honor you, our creator, the life giver, the sustainer of all that is, and to acknowledge that, to humble ourselves before you. And now, Lord, we take a few moments to reflect on your eternal word that you have so graciously preserved, kept, and had translated into our language so that we might know you, have a relationship with you, the only true and living God. And so, Lord, we come now, not for show, not to entertain, but simply so that you may be glorified and men may be edified. We pray that you would arrest hearts and minds today. I pray that your spirit would work powerfully in our congregation, that he might challenge us, that he might change us. And perhaps, Lord, there might be someone here who is seeking, curious, has unanswered questions. Would you do for them what you did for Lydia? Would you open their hearts that they might respond to your son? Would you call them to him so that they might have life? And as Pastor Mike prayed, one of the beautiful things about a life submitted to God is that it makes a better society. And so, Father, we pray that all human beings would come under your rule. And when that happens, then, Lord, the world will be as it should be. And we won't have to grieve the loss of life any longer. But until that day comes, help us to represent you well in the world. Uh, we do that by thinking about what your word has said so we, we might live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Bill McCartney, the founder of Promise Keepers, shares a story from his personal life uh, back in the early 80s when he took a job at the University of Colorado uh, to be the head coach of the football program there. When he first arrived at the program, uh, he made some promises about the priorities that he would have as he led the football department. And his priorities would follow in this order. Uh, first would be God. Second would be family. And last would be football. But as life began to happen, as he recalls those events in his life, that's not how it actually worked out, and it didn't take long before that promise became a distant memory. There was a thrill and the challenge of resurrecting a football program that had been in disarray. And in order to do that, it consumed large amounts of time, attention, and energy. And in his words, what he said is, as my teams kept winning year after year, I kept losing my focus on my priorities. 
Finally, in 1990, his uh, team won the national championship, and at that point, of course, those from the outside were looking in, said to him, you have reached the pinnacle of your profession. You have achieved what it is that a coach should achieve. But it's interesting. When he had achieved what he thought would be the pinnacle of his career, he felt very differently. He said instead, but for me, there was an emptiness about it. I had everything a man could want, and yet something was missing. I was so busy pursuing my career goals that I was missing out on the spirit-filled life that God wanted me to have, all because I had broken my promise to put God first and foremost in my life. Now, before we get down on Bill McCartney and start to judge him, we simply need to ask ourselves, has there ever been a time in our lives where we've broken a promise? Maybe it wasn't intentionally. Maybe it is just one of those times like you after service, you run into someone, they have, you start up a conversation and there's something going on in their life and they, uh, because you're a friend, they share with you what's happening in their life and uh, at the end of that whole discussion, they say to you, would you mind praying for me? And of course, you with a, a generous and open heart, you say, yes, I will pray for you. But you don't do it in that moment, and so you move on to the next conversation at church. You, you leave, and you head out, and you get in your week, and your week goes on, and you begin to live life. And next thing you know, it's Sunday morning again. You make your way to church, and you're after service again, and you run into them. And as you're walking towards them, there's this faint thought that comes in, up into your mind. I think last week they asked me to pray for them, but you never did. Just the business of life's calls it to slip your mind. See, life's busyness can often cause us to forget, and if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves not keeping our spiritual commitments. In Jacob's life this week, as we look at his life at this part in his life, it looks like this is what seems to have happened to him. Now, just to recall, Jacob is at this point, he's returning back home to the promised land, the land that he had grown up in where he had been raised by his father Isaac and his mother Rebecca and he has returned safely but he's returned differently than when he had left uh, he has brought with him wives and children servants and all types of possessions uh, now this is the land that, of course that God has promised now for the third generation he had promised this land to be an inheritance to his grandfather Abraham to his father Isaac and now he had been promised as well to inherit this land but we find out, uh, as Pastor Mike laid out last week in the text, uh, that when Jacob returned home, he did not quickly return to the last place we had seen his father Isaac's encampment, which was in Beersheba. Uh, no, he stops at Sukkoth for a while, and it seems but by the way the narrative plays out, although we don't have the years, because he builds houses and booths there for his animals, that there's a period of years that pass while he hangs out there. And then at some point later, he decides to, to move to an area where his grandfather had been once, which was outside the city of Shechem. And he builds an altar there as his grandfather Abraham done, uh, because he's trying to, to be faithful in the sense of to, to worship this God uh, that at once he did not know about, but now has become his God as it had become his father's God and his grandfather's God. And now he's at this place. But as Pastor Mike shared with us, the tragic events of last week, uh, some unfortunate things happened. And Put Isaac, I'm sorry, put Jacob back into a place in his life where he had not been recently, and that was to be fearful for his life yet again. And it's in these moments where he's afraid that he's again contemplating what will be his next move. 
And that's when God so graciously shows up and provides him with divine guidance. What does God direct him to do? The text tells us to return to the place of spiritual significance. Verse 1, I'll read it to you again. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Remember, Bethel was that place that God had shown up when Jacob had done some trickery with his brother and with his father, and, uh, and Esau had had enough. And he was out for blood, and he decided to pursue his brother, and so Jacob had to flee for his life. But it was on this road when he had nothing but his staff that God showed up at Bethel and let him know that there was going to be some things that he was going to do for him. And so God made him some great promises. He promised him that he was going to be the one who was going to, out of the family line, be chosen to inherit and carry on the Abrahamic promise that had been passed down from Abraham to Isaac and now to him, Jacob. And God would not only allow him to inherit that promise, that means that he would be the one who would get the land, his descendants, but in addition to that, even though he was wife, he didn't have a wife and he had no children, there would be a day when he would have wives and children and God would multiply them like the dust of the ground. And not only that, that God promised that, uh, that he would work through Jacob's family line to be a blessing to all the people on planet Earth. And not to mention that, that in this travel, when he left to go to Iran to escape his brother and also to uh, find a wife, that God would be with him in his journeys. He would bless him and he would protect him and return him safely to his homeland. And, and we see in the text that that's exactly what God did. But there's something else that happened in that meeting with God. When Jacob awoke and found out and received these wonderful promises from God, Jacob, in response, made a promise himself. Let me remind you of that, Genesis chapter 28, starting at verse 20. This is what Jacob said. Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, it seems that as life is going on and the years have passed, Jacob has forgotten these words, or at least he's delaying in fulfilling them. Instead, Jacob is busy caring for and managing all the blessings he's received from God. Now, it's probably been about 30 years since he's uttered these words, and they may have slipped his mind, but God has been mindful of them, and God remembers. And as a result, God calls Jacob to act faithfully by fulfilling his promise that he had uttered some 30 years before. Because the reality is one of the things that we learn about God's character is that God is faithful. And that those who follow him, his expectation is that we would uh, emulate his character in the world, that we also would be faithful. And so God calls his people to, to put his character out into the world to display that by being faithful as he is faithful. We see this example throughout the Old Testament as Jacob has descendants and that those descendants become the nation of Israel and they have this special relationship with God that no other nation on the earth has. There were moments of time when they would stray from that relationship. There was a covenant that had been formed. There was promises made between God and the people, but God always seemed to keep his part of the, the deal, but, but Israel always seemed to, to stray at times away from what they said that they would do. And so when they would stray away and they would break the covenant, they wouldn't keep faith, then God would send these guys, and sometimes ladies, called prophets. 
And the prophets would call the people back to be faithful to the covenant agreement that they had made with God because God expected them to live faithful to him and to the covenant they had with him. Likewise, if we uh, as people today who are sitting in this room have faith in God's son, Jesus Christ, who is the keeper of all of the old covenants, he kept all of them, and he's the mediator of the new covenant, then by faith in him, he has allowed us to enter into the new covenant with God through what he has done for us. And we are then as, as participants in the new covenant called also like Israel to act faithfully in how we live. Jesus alludes to this when he says this in his command in the Gospels, when he preaches his sermon on the mountain, he talks about life in the kingdom. And he says this, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is, you will act faithfully toward the covenant. The Apostle Paul alludes to this when he talks about the ministry that they have as apostles, and he talks about what is required of one who has been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, of bringing people back to God through announcing the good news about what God has done in Jesus. And Paul wrote this. He says this about himself and the other apostles. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they should be found faithful. If you read the New Testament, this theme appears again and again and again in books like Hebrews, James, 1 John, and Jude. There's a call for believers to remain faithful to God and to the covenant promises that we have in Christ Jesus. Which brings me to the natural question. If God calls us to be faithful to him, then how should we respond to that call in light of what scripture teaches us? In this case, Jacob's life points us in the right direction of how we should respond. His life doesn't always point us in the right direction because, like us, there are times when Jacob makes very bad decisions. But on this case, he makes a very good decision. For that, we'll return to the text. Genesis chapter 35 will pick up at verse 2. Verse 2 says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He said, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called his name Alon Bakuth, or the Oak of Weeping. What did... Jacob do in response to God's call, he acts with faith like his father, his grandfather, Abraham. In other words, he trusts what God says and he acts, he orders his life so as to do exactly what God has asked him to do and he does it without delay. In some ways, this foreshadows the coming of the initiation of the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 19 where there is a purifying of the people before they uh, go to meet with God. 
And so Jacob says to his family, in order for us to be able to, to properly worship this God, there are some things that we need to do first to get our house in order to be able to worship this God properly and rightly. And the first thing he says to them is that there must be a relinquishment of attachment to foreign gods. There must be a purifying of yourselves and there must be a changing of garments so that we can rightly and properly worship this God who has created all things because he is holy. Now, it's interesting for us that at this point in the text in Jacob's life, we've seen that there has been a move, a shift in his life towards there is a devotion to the God of his father, Isaac, and to the God of his father, Abraham. And we might be surprised to find that there's still other gods in his house, some statues, some household gods. We simply need to remember back what happened in Jacob's family life. When he left Laban's house, his wife that he loved so much, his favorite wife, Rachel, had stolen the household gods. So they were still there. Jacob had no knowledge of that. But then there, there had been recently, as Pastor Mike talked about, there had been war waged last week, uh, as we talked about what happened in Shechem. And there had been the capturing of women and children and livestock that had been taken from the city and brought in to be part of Jacob's household as captives of war. And because these people were worshipers in the land, they had their own gods, and most likely they brought those gods with them into captivity. And so what Jacob says as a leader of the household is there must be a purging, a, a getting rid of all idolatry in the house if we're going to worship God. Uh, now, interesting here, the text, it talks about earrings. The earrings either refer to, in light of what we know from, from history, either the earrings were those earrings that were sometimes put in household idols, or they were earrings that sometimes were given, at least we found one instance from archaeology, where there were some 24-karat gold earrings, and it had written down the sides, uh, dedication to a certain God. And sometimes as we look at the Bible and later development, that earrings were melted down, used to form idols. In either case, they, these earrings are associated with idolatry, and Jacob doesn't want anything in his house that tries to compete with the God that he has given his allegiance to, and he worships. So he gets rid of everything that speaks of any other allegiance than other to the God of heaven, the God of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. Now he says purify. Here purify has to do probably with the idea of washing oneself, cleansing oneself with water, and then he asks for a change of clothes. What, what Jacob is doing in the natural world is talking about a spiritual reality that he wants to happen in his family. This is a picture of that. Ultimately, it's a picture of repentance, of turning away from idolatry to turning to God and spiritual cleansing and thus the washing and the changing of clothes which we see in other uh, examples in the Old Testament. Because as we read the Old Testament, one of the things that we find out about the God who actually is, is that humans cannot enter his presence in an unclean state. That's what the book of Leviticus teaches us, that there is a certain way that we as humans must come into the presence of a holy God. We just can't waltz into God's presence however we decide that there is a, a set of order of things that must be accomplished before we go into God's presence. Or as others have learned, there could be death. After making spiritual preparations for worship, they traveled to Bethel and Jacob then built an altar there, most likely to fulfill that vow of giving a tenth, most likely sacrificing a tenth of his animals to God in order to worship him. And by doing these things in the text, Jacob now fulfills that 30-year-old promise, and he shows that he acts with faith, and thus he is found to be faithful toward God in these things. But these actions of these moments remind us about what it means to be faithful to God. And there are a few things that we can draw from this. How are we as people to respond when God calls upon us to be faithful? 
If you're his people, then you should act and live a faithful life to God. There are a number of things that we can draw out of this about realities, about faithfulness. The first thing that we get from the text is this, that in order to be able to live a faithful life for God, it begins with a need for spiritual cleansing to enter God's presence in peace and remain in relationship with him. We must be spiritually clean in order to enter God's presence because God is holy. And like Jacob and his family, we must also put away all our foreign gods or forms of idolatry. That's what repentance is all about. We turn away from everything else in our life that has been controlling our affections and guiding our lives to turning to God to be the only one who controls our affections and guides our life. And like Jacob's family, we need a spiritual washing, a spiritual cleansing. But in the New Testament, we find out that that does not come by applying water to the body, but it only comes through the work of Jesus Christ as the Spirit of God, when we place faith in him, applies the blood of Christ to us and cleanses us from all sin. Peter says this in the Council of Acts chapter 15 when he's talking about the, this whole idea about the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. It has moved beyond the, the state of Israel. And, and now those who are not natural descendants of Abraham have been included into Abraham's family. How is it now that we ought to believe that they ought to live? And what he talks about this is he, is he lays all this out. He says something interesting. He says that their hearts have been cleansed by faith in God's son, that the inward person is cleansed by the work of Christ as we place faith in him. His blood is what cleanses us. We see the same thing in 1 John chapter 1 as he talks to believers and he says to believers, if you have sinned and you confess your sins, that God is faithful and just to cleanse you. How does he cleanse you? He cleanses you with the work of Christ on the cross. This is most clearly displayed when we have baptism here at church. It is a picture of repentance that is, we're dying to the dead works we had done when we were enemies in our minds, showing that we were enemies of God through the evil deeds that we did. And we have died to that old life and the cleansing of water. We are washed by the regeneration of the spirit. We are raised to new life with Christ. And we have made a plea to God through baptism to clean our conscience and that we will now live under the rule of God with the rest of our lives dedicated to him, no longer dedicated to ourselves and the idols that we had once worshiped. No, that's the way we're cleansed. It's only through what Christ has done. The text also reminds us that as people who seek, who have been cleansed by the work of Christ, when we seek to walk with God, we also have a, a changing of clothes that must happen in our lives. I'm not talking about clothes that you find in Macy's, JCPenney's, or at the Tanger outlets. No, no, these are not external things that we put on. These are internal things. We've been wearing clothes internally, and people see them all the time. But Paul talks about them to make, let us know what they are, that there's a, a taking off that needs to happen and a putting on that needs to happen because, because we've been created and we've been made in the image of, of Christ and followed the image of the creator. There are certain things that, that are not fitting for us to wear any longer. And so Paul lays this out in Colossians chapter 3. He says, these are the things that you are to take off and these are the things that you are to, to put on. Paul says this, he says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices 
and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here is, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. But the text also reminds us of what the Lord Jesus says to us about the kind of people we ought to be who are in the kingdom as he talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or from the evil one. The people of the kingdom of God ought to be like God, reliable, trustworthy, that what you say can be counted upon. Others should be able to take what you say and know that because you said it, if you said you would do it, then it is surely that you will do it. If we make a commitment, we should seek to keep our commitments. Mark Morgan was recalling a story from his life when his children, uh, his sons, Peter and Paul, were younger, recalled the story that one night he had come home after a Bible study with his wife. He had come in, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and it had been an hour after his children had been put to bed by the sitter, and so he went in to check on his children to see if they were asleep. Uh, Paul was asleep, but Peter was still awake, and uh, when he came in to check on him, he said, hey, man, you still awake? And he was like, yeah, Dad, I'm still awake. And he said, Daddy, can I have some ice cream? And his dad was like, Mark was like, well, son, you know, it's as late as way past bedtime. You should be sleeping. Now is not the time for ice cream. And so then Peter said, but daddy, you promised me today that we would have ice cream today. See, earlier that day, there had been uh, the, the dinner and they had had dinner and they had asked dad, dad, can we have ice cream? And he said to them, uh, hey, listen, uh, I, will, I promise you tonight. Later, I will get ice cream for you. But then they got to be the cleaning up of the kitchen, dishes put it away. Kids were picking up their toys and cleaning up their rooms as they prepared for the sitter to come over. And so there was the rush to get everything in order. The sitter arrived. She showed up and they uh, got the kids set up. And then they had to dash out the door to make it to their Bible study for the night. And in the business of trying to get everything get together and get to the Bible study and be a part of that and do all of that, it simply has slipped his mind. He said at that moment when his son said that there was a conviction that happened for him because he wants his son to understand that when a promise is made, a promise should be kept. So he walked downstairs, he got his car keys, and he drove to the local grocery store, bought a half gallon of ice cream, came home, <coughs> sat down with his son and had a small bowl of chocolate and vanilla swirled ice cream because he wanted his son to realize that once a promise had been made, it should be kept. See, the scriptures tell us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, as Paul writes to the Galatians, he says something interesting about what the Spirit does in the life of a believer that is yielded to him. Of all the fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit talks about, one of the things that we find in that list is that when a believer's life is yielded and when they're walking under the guidance of the Spirit, one of the things he produces in our lives is faithfulness. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. That's what the Spirit will produce in your life if you're walking under his guidance. Which brings me to the last thing in the text. God blesses his people when they live 
faithful lives. God blesses his people when they live faithful lives. Let me show you that to you in text. Genesis chapter 25, 35, we'll pick up here at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And he called his name Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, or the house of God. In the text, we see two examples of God's blessing upon Jacob's life when he had acted faithfully. It comes in the forms of protection and promise. If you look back at verse 5, you'll notice something that I read in the previous text of what God does. Jacob is afraid for his life because his sons have in, in essence, initiated an act of war. They have attacked, unprovoked, the people of the land. They, they have slaughtered an entire city of men, uh, which are a part of the population of that town. And what would be the case, most likely there would be retribution from those others that they had alliances with. And so Jacob is afraid for his life because unlike his father, his possessions are not as great. He, don't have a, he doesn't have a small militia like Esau did with 400 men. He has a few servants, and so most likely if he's attacked, he will be destroyed, and so he is, he is afraid. But notice what the text says. When he decided to act faithfully toward God, what does God do for him? God protects him. He blessed him by putting a great fear upon the people of the land so that although Jacob travels to the place that God has called him to, he suffers no harm. This is one of the ways that God blesses him. The second way we see in the text, which is the text I just read to you, is that God reiterates and expands the promises that he makes to Jacob, and it, it makes us reminiscent of Genesis chapter 17 when God makes the same promise to his grandfather, Abraham. We see this in other places in the Bible where God does this, that when people who are his people act faithfully, that he blesses them. I will give you two examples of that. One, I will draw from our children's ministry what's, what's they're learning downstairs right now, which has to do with the life of Daniel. Daniel was uh, one of the members of the royal household uh, and, and at this point in the life of Israel, they had been separated into two nations because of some issues that had happened. And in the southern kingdom, which was called or known by the name of Judah, it was two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, but since Judah was a greater tribe, they took that name. Uh, and, and so at this point, there has been a capture. The fall of Judah has begun, and there are captives that are led off because Babylon is expanding and has become the world power. And they take captive some of the mem members of the royal household. Daniel is one of those men. He is made into a eunuch, and he is pressed into the service of the king. He is put into a political office. But as a part of being part of the Babylonian area and taken back to Babylon, he is also pressed to accept Babylonian culture. And so part of that means that he will have to eat Babylonian food in order to be a part of that household. But the problem for Daniel is that he has the law of Moses, and there have been requirements that have been placed upon them in their dietary restrictions that they're not to eat if they're to be faithful to the God of Israel. And so Daniel is faced with a choice. Will I submit myself to the king of the land or will I submit myself to the king of heaven? Who will I follow? Who will I order my life by? And so we find in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 
Daniel's decision in this moment. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This puts the, the, the chief of the eunuchs in a precarious position because he has been charged. His life is in danger if things don't turn out well with those who are under his charge. But Daniel, God gives him favor and gives him wisdom to know how to, to make a proposal that will be acceptable. So he asked, hey, listen, allow me to be faithful to my God and my dietary restrictions. And I promise you at the end of 10 days, test us and see how we look compared to those who have followed your diet. And this is where things get really interesting uh, in the text. Because what he asked for is something that we look for for weight loss. I'm going to eat veggies and I'm going to drink water. And now none of us in this room expect to gain any weight if all we're eating is vegetables and water. Like we're like, yes, this is going to be a great weight loss program. I'm going to be a whole lot lighter in about three months, right? right? That's what you're thinking. But we're going to notice in the text what happens. Notice what it says in verse 15. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that there were, they were better in appearance, and notice what the text says, and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. When is the last time veggies and water made you fat? <laughs> I don't know what kind of vegetables those are. I don't, I don't think here that, that there's anything special about the vegetables. I think vegetables have natural properties, and if you follow this, as people do today, they follow it for weight loss. They call it the Daniel diet, right? We follow it to lose weight. That's not what Daniel was doing. He had the very opposite effect going on. What I believe what we see in the text is the mighty hand of God ordering life so that Daniel might be able to be faithful and remain faithful to him. So he intervenes in the natural order of things so that he reverses it so that Daniel and his friends may stay faithful to him. And what we see here is that God blesses him with protection. Let me give you to you a second example taken from the New Testament uh, at the end in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ as John the Revelator writes to one of the churches uh, who is having a very hard time and communicates Christ's words to them. Please notice what the text says. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be test tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 10 days kind of reminds us of Daniel being tested, and now we are calling upon these New Testament believers by the Spirit through the words of Christ, through his angel, his messenger to the church, to remain faithful during hard times, even if your life is taken. And what God gives them is a promise of blessing. God's blessings don't always come on this side. We see that in the story of Lazarus. Sometimes the one who God helps, he helps them after they die. How does he help them? By giving them eternal life, by protecting them from the second death. The great promise is that he says to the churches, as though you may suffer here under the hand of Satan and the move of the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, he says to them, though you might suffer, your life might even be taken. Don't worry. I'm still going to bless you. But what I'm going to bless you is with life, life eternal, so that you will never die 
again. He blesses them with promise and he calls upon them to be faithful because what I believe the text teaches us is that when God's people live faithful to him, he blesses them. He blesses them. And I believe that we see that in the lives of others as well, and I'll close with this. One such example was the life by the name of, some of you are familiar with, George Mueller. George was a a native-born German, a Prussian, exactly. He was born in the early 1900s, uh, September of uh, 1805, and lived most of his life, however, not in that area, but in Bristol, England, where he uh, ended up coming to faith in Christ after a riotous life. Uh, But when he became to Christ, he came to Christ. And he became extremely serious and devoted and dedicated to Christ, ended up becoming a pastor, and he pastored the same church for some 66 years. That's a long time to pastor. He lived on to be 92 and died at the end of the 19th century. During that time, not only did he pastor, but in his relationship with God, he was led to care for orphans uh, in light of the need that was going on in England at the time, and through his care, he ended up taking care of, during his lifetime, over 10,000 orphans. But there was something interesting about him uh, that he did which we did intentionally for the sake of all of us. And this is what he did. He wanted, because he had seen in Christian lives that there was this breakdown in faithfulness and prayer to God. And so what he wanted to do with his life was prove by being faithful in prayer that the God that we read about in the Bible is the same God who's running the world today and that he does respond to his people in prayer. So he decided that what he would do is he would meticulously journal his prayer requests and the answers. At the end of his life, when it was taken up, he said that over 50,000 prayers had been answered by God. He just wanted to be an example. So at the end of his life, there was an interview with a gentleman by the name of Pastor uh, Parsons, Charles Parsons, uh, who had a chance to interview him. And let me recount to you a couple of things that he said in that interview that I think are uh, or relevant to what we're talking about. One of the questions Pastor Parsons asked him, he said, do you spend much time on your knees? Here referring to, do you really pray a lot? Do you, are you really faithful in prayer? Are, are you devoted to it? And this is what he said. He said, I, I pray hours every day, but I live in a spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk, when I lie down, and when I rise. And the answers are always coming. Tens of thousands of times my prayers have been answered. When once... I am persuaded that a thing is right. I'm going, I go on praying for it until the end comes. I never give up. Now, a documentary about his life this week as they recounted some of his words and read to him, one of the things that interested me about what he said about how he approached prayer was differently than how I, I sometimes approach prayer. One of the things that George Mueller said is when he got down to pray, he spent hours reading God's word. As a matter of fact, they said that in his lifetime, he had read the Bible over 200 times cover to cover. If you do the math on that, that is he read through the Bible about four times a year, cover to cover, for 50 years, consistently. He took in the word of God, so he said that when he got down to pray, though, the first thing that he would do was do business with his own heart, that he read the word of God so that he might empty himself of his own desires, because the only desire that he wanted to have when he made any request to God was simply this, I want to glorify you and do your will and not my will. And so whatever request I'm going to make, I first want to make sure that they're in alignment with what you want done in the earth. I want my life to be about what you want done. And so he would seek to pray to get his heart right before God, not about fulfilling his desires, but about fulfilling God's will in the earth. And he would spend time until his heart was in a place where it was no longer desiring its own things, but solely desiring to do the will of God. And then he would make his request. 
it was interesting that he said that in the interview. He went on to say, well, uh, as Pastor Parsons asked him, well, has God really been faithful to you as you have tried to be faithful in prayer? And this is what he said. Always. He has never failed me. For nearly 70 years, every need in connection with this work has been supplied. Here he's talking about the orphanage. The orphans from the first until now have numbered 9,500, but they have never wanted a meal. Hundreds of times we have commenced the day without a penny, but our Heavenly Father has sent supplies the moment they were actually required. There never was a time when he had no hope, we had no wholesome meal. During all these years, I have been enabled to trust, the, trust in the living God alone. $7,500,000 have been sent to me in answer to prayer. We needed as much as $200,000 in one year, and it all came in just when it was needed. No man can ever say to me that I asked him for a penny. We have no committees, no collectors, no voting, no endowment. All has come in as a result of answer to believing prayer. God has many ways of moving the hearts of men to help us all over this continent and this world. While I'm praying, he speaks to one and to another, someplace on the continent and another in another place to send us help. Only the other evening while I was preaching, a gentleman wrote a check for a large amount and handed it to me when the service was over. He said that because of his faithfulness in prayer, because he believed that God was the same, he would devote his life to that. What did he experience in result? The faithfulness of God. Brothers and sisters, that's what the text is asking us. God has called you, if you're his child, to be faithful. Your right response is to live a faithful life. And if you do that, what you'll find is that you will experience God's faithfulness in your life. So the question that stands before you and I today is, will you choose to live faithful to God? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word as Jacob's life, as you interact with him, challenges and calls us to a life of faithfulness. And like George Mueller Lord, uh, we come before you today, and we pray that, Lord, you would help us to get to the place uh, that we would seek not to fulfill our own desires and order the world as we would see it, to see you as an add-on, a one who can give us the life that we want. But because of our devotion to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom, that those desires would be transformed by the work of your spirit and your word, that we would pursue your desires, your will, and your work in the earth that we would be so devoted to you that our hearts would be praying in accordance with what it is that you want done in the world. Would you do this in our hearts, in 